Yeah? Okay, we're going to get started. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, amen. All right, so um, good afternoon, everyone. How's everyone doing? Uh, as we know, the holidays are fast approaching. We got through Halloween, and Thanksgiving is right around the corner now. Um, and I always think of Thanksgiving as a forgotten stepchild. You know, it kind of gets uh, run over like, um, like a stampede or like a speed bump because Christmas, right? We always see it in the groceries. We always see it in the stores where right after Halloween, it goes straight to Christmas. And so, but believe it or not, Thanksgiving is my absolute favorite holiday. Um, it's simple, it's sweet, it's family-oriented, not over-commercialized yet. Um, and lost in the busyness of the holidays. It's my kind of holiday, right? It's kind of forgotten. And so I decided to dedicate the next two weeks uh, to Thanksgiving. So we're going to do a two-part series on giving thanks. Um, we'll do it today and then next Sunday. So unfortunately, you have me twice, so I apologize for that. Okay? So um, I wanted to ask you guys a question. Um, and the question, the first question I want to ask is, what is Thanksgiving? What is the true meaning that you believe is the essence of Thanksgiving to you? And I really, this is not uh, rhetorical. This is actually participation. If anyone would like to respond, what is Thanksgiving? What does it mean to you? Not all hands at once. Anyone? Okay, Sherry. I mean, we're blessed to have the Thanksgiving prayer in every hour, right? And so excellent. Um, it's not something I'm good at, but something I strive for is to give thanks in every circumstance. And um, I have a friend who took a big medical board exam and failed it, I think, two or three times. And after she failed it, one of the times she said, you know, my goal was to be able to say the Thanksgiving prayer after I got my result, no matter what, and I was able to do that, so I was happy at least I was able to do that, and that was, like, I think very impressive, you know, when a, in a situation that would devastate most people to be able to give thanks, I think it's what we should strive for. Excellent. That's, we're absolutely going to be talking about that. Very well said. Thank you, Sherry. Anyone else? All right, so we'll go ahead and continue. So uh, what I want to go over <clears throat> is I want to go over five aspects that, we'll, that we can reflect upon. We'll go over three today, and then we'll go over the last two next week. So before I jump into those aspects, I want, what did Thanksgiving come from? Where was it birthed? How did it all occur? And when we actually read the reason of why Thanksgiving came to be, you will understand the true meaning of it. And so this was um, a proclamation in 1789 by George Washington, who's addressing the people. And I want us to focus on these words because it's going to pretty much uh, encompass everything that we're going to be talking about the next two weeks. It's a beautiful beautiful address. It's a beautiful message. Here's what he says to, to the people of the United States of America. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge, very important word, the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, 
and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November. Author of all the good that was, that is, and that will ever be that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks. And also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our, na our national and other transgressions for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation. That's beautiful. So this was the proclamation, the address he gave the people before enacting the very first Thanksgiving. That was the purpose of Thanksgiving. And when I think of this, I think of it as a public prayer. I feel like he was addressing the people as Thanksgiving is a time to pray. So this was an address of a public prayer. And this brings us to our very first aspect. Thanksgiving is a life of prayer, not just prayer, a life of prayer. It's a way of life. It's a way of thinking. It's a mentality. It's a lifestyle. Everything we do, exactly what Sherry said, should start, always be during, and after everything. Thanksgiving is always, always. Okay? Okay. Um, so what is prayer? And in our lives, we've heard of a lot of definitions, a lot of understandings of what prayer is, but I love this, uh, this quote. It says, I think this is one of the, the, the better definitions that I've heard from prayer. It says, it is the human response to the love God pours upon every soul. It is the human response to the love God pours upon every soul. So when we don't pray, we're missing out, okay? And the key word here is response. If we take the mentality that we are just in response to the acknowledgement of who God is, then we have a very different perspective of what prayer is. Prayer is a response to what God has already provided for us from the very beginning. All that we ever do is in response to him. Our entire existence is to be recipients of our source. Created to worship the creator, to love others comes from the lover of mankind. So prayer is all something of aftermath. Prayer is the idea that, God, I acknowledge everything that you have bestowed upon me since the very beginning of our existence. That's what prayer is. It's in response to what God has already done. Okay? And this gives us 
two amazing things. The first one is it gives us this amazing freedom from being the producer, from being the source. It's like a weight off our shoulders. We let God be God, and we just let him love us. That's our jobs. That's it. Is we allow God to be God, and we just sit back and take it all in and appreciate it and give gratitude for it. That's thanksgiving. That's a prayer that we're supposed to be living out. The second thing it does, it gives us now the openness and invitation to receive more. When our hearts are sensitive, when we're delicate, and we understand what God has done, we open ourselves up for an invitation to receive more of his grace and blessings. But the reason that sometimes we feel that we don't get these things is because our perspective is wrong. We forget we, what we actually have. Okay? So giving things is the ultimate concept of giving, keyword there, in all aspects of our worship. No need to think about what we're going to take, what we're going to ask for, what we want. He already knows what we want before we even ask of it. That's scriptural. No need of anything, no desiring, no demanding, asking nothing but only to seek, to honor, glorify, and praise God. That's it. So just simply giving back the acknowledgement of who God is, which is love. And this is why we say we love him because he first loved us. Not because, okay, well, he started it, so maybe I just need to continue that. No, the idea is God is love. And since he is the, the, the foundation and the product of love, we can't help but love back. That's what we were created for. It, it's in our genetics. It's in our nature. His essence, his nature has become one with ours. So when he loved us, it, it, it's just natural to love him back. Okay? This is why the church fathers say that giving thanks is the purest form of prayer. Now, who and what teaches, teaches and constantly reminds us of this concept? And this is the beauty. This is the beauty of our faith. Christ and the bridegroom, the church. Why do we come every Sunday? We know what we're getting ourselves into. There's no surprise here. We come in and guess what? The liturgy is the same, right? The midnight praises are the same. Doxologies, matins, vespers, they're all the same. So why do we keep coming? It's because the church reminds us of who we are and who we belong to. It's the constant reminder of giving thanks back to our divine and holy heavenly father. Okay? That is why we recite the prayer of thanksgiving before anything else. We even recite it in funerals. Why would we recite it in funerals? Think about it. Because before we existed, while we exist, and after we pass away, thanksgiving never ends. It's continuous. His salvation, his incarnation, the sacraments of the church, all of these are what? Response to thanksgiving. Okay? 
So the church is teaching and reminding us that in everything we give thanks first and foremost before anything. We thank God before, during, and after everything, even our own lives. And I want us to think about when was the last time we prayed completely of thanksgiving and nothing else. Simply praising and loving God for who he is and what he does for us daily. Just saying, thank you. And I realize when my prayer is more focused, when I introduce my prayer with nothing but acknowledgement, there is such a happier and loving experience in that prayer. There, 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 there's such a being of like, oh my gosh, all I have to do is just acknowledge what he's always done. That's all I ever have to do in my prayer. Everything else will fall into place. But we get sidetracked. We get distracted. We, we worry about the present moment. We worry about what's going to happen. We worry about the past. But the salvation is in present moment. It's now. Okay? There's something else that George Washington said that really impacted me, and that was all the good that he will ever do, he is, ever, is doing, and will ever do. And it made me think about this question. When someone does something good, what do we usually say to this individual? Thank you. Good job. You did well. So if God is always good, then doesn't he deserve a forever thank you? Shouldn't our prayer life be a continuous proclamation of thanksgiving? When we think about it, everything else we pray about that is outside of thanksgiving at the end of the road, always leads back to us. It's always about self. The only time where it's selfless, where it's not about us, is thanksgiving. Even if, if, even if it's good things, even when we talk about others, we talk, or we want to apologize and we want to repent our sins, those are still good things, but it's still about what? Me. But the only time where we say, thank you, Father, that acknowledgement, and it's not about us, is thanksgiving. So the focus turns from thanksgiving to thanks-taking, and we have to be careful of this. And sometimes it's necessary. But there's also another thing about prayer, and that is it reminds us to live a life of sacrifice. Because what, what are we doing when we're praying? We have to focus. We have to give energy. We have to be vulnerable. We have to admit what we have done wrong. We have to constantly think of God rather than ourselves. It's a sacrificial life. So a life of prayer is a sacrifice of self. It's killing the self, not a focus on self. Which brings us uh, to the next aspect, the second one, which is thanksgiving is a commitment to sacrifice. And this is hard for us. This is very difficult for us to sacrifice. But uh, what we're going to notice is it's actually a commandment by God. And I'm not going to read it to you. If It's found in Leviticus 7. It's when God institutes the law of sacrifice, and one of those sacrifices is a peace offering. And what it illustrates, I'm not going to read it, is the idea of making peace, of reconciling with God through sacrificial free will. We have the free will to want to sacrifice. And we want to sacrifice it for him out of choice. He doesn't need us. He wants us. He desires us. 
And this is called the sacrifice of thanksgiving that you can read in Leviticus 7. Even the things that he commands from us is still free will. It's still on your end. I want you guys to do these. These are my beloved commandments. I, I, I desire for you to do these, but out of your heart. Out of the desire of your heart, I want you to want to sacrifice to me. I want you to give me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So he desires for us to desire him. I'll say that again. He desires for us to desire him. That's what he wants. Then the next question we have to ask is, what do you sacrifice to someone, God, who has everything? I think about this once in a while. What, what can I possibly offer to God? He has everything. The true, real answer, nothing. You can't. There's nothing that we can offer to God. Because it's not the offering that's important, what it is. What is important is he accepts it. Just like how, how many of us in here deserve the Eucharist? Let's think about it. How much of us deserve to take in the body of Christ? And we say it in, we say it in the liturgy, none of us. How dare we go up there thinking we could take communion? But he allows it. That's the difference. He takes it as a father does his child. He goes, you give me this, which I already gave you, which doesn't mean anything to me. But because you did it out of the abundance of your heart, thank you. I love you. It's a father to a child. That is the importance of sacrifice to God. It's not that he needs it, but it shows our childish desire for the Father. Thank you. You give them, you know, sometimes you, 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 know, you see um, a child give their mother dandelions. Those are weeds. Those are dead flowers. They're useless. But does the mother ever refuse it from, from her child? No, because what do you see when that, when, when, that, when that gift is given to you? What do you see? You see the love in their eyes. That's our beloved father. He sees the love in our eyes. That's why Thanksgiving is important. Because we're giving our hearts to him. And that's the most important thing. Okay? And we also have Christ. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. So we are essentially giving God what is, what is already his, which is ourselves, okay? We sacrifice our lives, time, energy, as much as we can because that is what Christ did for us, acknowledgement. That's why he says something very important. He says, imitate me. You can't be me. You don't have my divinity. You can't be the perfect sacrifice that I was for my father, but guess what? I'm asking you to imitate me. Just like my beloved begotten son, be like him. Do what he does. That's what I'm asking you to do, to your best ability. I sacrifice, you sacrifice. I sacrifice myself to you, now you sacrifice yourself to me. I commit my entire life to you, do the same. 
And so what I want to do is I want to compare two sacrifices. It's the same sacrifice, but two very different mentalities. The sacrifice from Cain and the sacrifice from David. In Cain's sacrifice, in Genesis 4, it reads the following, and I want you to pay attention to how God addresses Cain. Cain brought an offering to, of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. God did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Pay attention to this. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Who doesn't do well? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Fair warning, don't be the first murderer. Don't kill. Because this can go very bad. Listen to what I'm saying, because this can go very bad. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So many assume that Abel's offering is accepted because his animal sacrifice must have been better than Cain's crop sacrifice. But that's not the case. Rather, there is no problem in Cain's offering. He'll take whatever. Just like the widow of the two mites. You know what two mites is? One-eighth of a penny. That's nothing. So if the widow was judged on the one-eighth of the penny, thanks for nothing. But it wasn't. It was out of her livelihood. It is out of everything that she has. That's the importance. God doesn't need money. He doesn't need animal sacrifice. He wants you. He wants your desire. He wants your love. He wants your heart. So the text does not simply say that Cain's offering is not accepted, but it says that Cain and his offering are not accepted. So Cain is the issue, not his offering. The narrative implies that there is something wrong with the one making the offering, not simply with the offering itself. Cain is the issue, not his sacrifice. And this is why God's grace and love is he's giving him another chance. That's why God tries to encourage an angered Cain before it's too late. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Change your attitude, change your mentality, change the reason of why you're doing this to me. Because he's coming in angry. He's sacrificing out of, what is he sacrificing out of? Ritual requirement. You know, I'm just going to check off a box. Not out of the abundance of his heart. Not from the love of his heart. He was doing it because he felt like he had to. Now let's look at David's sacrifice. And we're going to see something very different. And remember what God says about David? A man, a man after my own heart. So in this, uh, in this passage, what we're going to read is a narrative between David and a landowner. His name's Ornan. And he wants to buy this property of land to put an altar and to worship God. And this, uh, and this piece of land is called the threshing floor, 
which is a place where the harvest was prepared by separating the grain from the useless straw, and so it's very, very valuable land. And look how David approaches this. Then David said to Ornan, that's the landowner, grant me the place of this threshing floor, a place of crop, that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at full price. I don't want to bargain. I don't want to argue. I want to pay full price. But Ornan said to David, now look at Ornan's heart. Take it to yourself and let my lord, the king, do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings. I give you the threshing implements for wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all to you for free. Just take it because I want to do this for the Lord. Then what does King David say? No, but I will surely buy it for the full price for I will not take what is yours for the Lord. This isn't about you. This is about me offering to God. So if I take it for free, who's doing the real sacrifice? Ornan. But David says, no, 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 I want to give this to God. So don't take that blessing away from me. Nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. So when we sacrifice, we actually have to ask ourselves, is it genuine? Is it inconvenient? Is it difficult? Does it hurt? Does it sting a little? That's the real sacrifice. I don't want to just sacrifice leftovers to God. Oh, look at my, my house. This furniture, we need new furniture. Why don't we just donate this? Which is good. Don't get me wrong. That's good to, to donate. But also donate out of the abundance of what you have as well. Go ahead, donate that. But also maybe think about oh, there's this other new furniture. Maybe we can replace those and give that also to the poor as well. So just make sure that when we sacrifice, it's an inconvenience, that's okay. That it's difficult, that's okay. Because that's when we're now showing the heart to God. Okay? So David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offering, thanksgiving, and called on the Lord and he answered him. So he answers him. From heaven by fire on the altar by burnt offering. So he, he accepts it. Okay? So what do we notice with Cain and David? Offered the same product, crops. But, ha but had very different intentions and attitudes. One did it out of grumbling. The other did it out of gratitude. Very different words. Therefore, it is the moral disposition of the one making the offering that decides the worth of the sacrifice. God is not appeased by offerings. I want to make that very clear. No matter how valuable we think it is to us, but rather he seeks an upright heart in those who offer sacrifice to others. The sacrifice itself has no importance to God. It is the heart, the love behind it. The offering reflects how thankful we are. It expresses our hearts. That's why we hear, and we know this very well, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why do we use the term treasure here? That's a very important word. Why treasure? It's what we value the most. Do we value? Some people value alcohol a lot. It becomes a false idol. We value watching a lot of TV, false idol. When we start to value things outside of God, 
it starts to occupy our valuable time, wants, and desires. So we have to be very careful. And yes, we enjoy things in life, but we don't have a desire, passion for them. That's what we have to be careful because then we will keep going back to that sin. Okay? So your heart in anything you do shows genuine thanksgiving and love to God. So we have to be very careful with our hearts. And our last aspect, we'll end with this one. And then we'll continue the last two next week. Thanksgiving is a proof of faith. When things get challenging, how do we react? Do we still give thanks? Do we place our trust in our faith? Or do we put it in others or in objects, in things? And sometimes we don't know what we're doing. Sometimes we don't realize that we're doing that. So I'm going to tell you two stories. The story of Job, which we heard about today a little bit, and uh, St. Paul. So we know the story of Job, so I'm just going to summarize. He had lots of possessions, and Satan went to God to prove that he will fall when given challenging circumstances. So Satan attacks Job's character, makes him lose all his property, kills all his children, and has all these natural disasters happen to him. Now here's how Job reacts. It's all perspective. Look how Job reacts. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. That's what he does? After all this, does he have the right to say, how dare you, God? I have been so faithful and so loyal to you. This is what I get at the end? This is your gratitude towards me? Did I deserve all this? No. What does he do instead? He lives a life of prayer. He worships. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So what is Job realizing here? And it's something we need to realize in moments like these, which we won't have a moment like this. But when hardships come, when tribulations come, obstacles come our way, we proclaim the truth. When we go back to the truth of our faith, then all of a sudden the situation doesn't seem so bad. And what do I mean by that? It's what he says. God giveth, God take it away. I came, I shouldn't be in existence, right? In my mother's womb, I came naked, and naked shall I return. In other words, God's in control. And if I know that my God is a loving God, then I don't need to know the reason of why this happened. All I need to do is trust and give the proof of my faith. Because why should all good come to me? Do I deserve to always have it good? And sometimes we think this is the norm. That everything in our life, we expect it to be good. That's the norm. And so we're content. But when something comes awry, something doesn't go my way, I overreact. 
because I have an expectation of God. And that's not fair. So he proclaims the truth about his faith in God and who he is, which is nothing without God. His thanksgiving prayer comes from the conviction of his faith, which is truth. And this is why Job was able to take in all of these disasters, to lose his family, to lose his land, his cattle, his property, everything, because he knows who God is. Then Satan goes a step further, and this is what Satan does very well. He goes a step further. He's super upset with Job. How is he worshiping after what I've done to him? And he asked God to allow him to attack Job's health. And this is, what the, this is what Satan does. He attacks from the outside so we can still have our attachments. If that doesn't work, he'll attack within. He'll attack our minds, our families, things that are most valuable and closer to us. So the more we give thanks, the more will be taken away from us. It's one of the, the many paradoxes of our faith. And he tells him to attack Job's health, and he does with painful boils from head to toe. Then his wife says to Job, now listen to what his wife says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Ouch. That's from my flesh. That's from my spouse. Curse God and die. That's what you're supposed to be doing. And then look at Job's response. I, I wouldn't say this, but this is what Job says. <laughs> says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. <laughs> shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, so you just want it good all the time. That's how we want it. But if it's always good, what happens to us? I want us to think about this. Let's say God gave us everything we wanted. What would happen to us? What happens if you keep giving a, a, a child candy? I want candy. Okay. The next day, I want more candy. Oh, okay. I'll keep giving you candy. What's going to happen to that child? Sick to their stomach, throw up, and an expectation, entitlement. I get whatever I want, anytime I want it. My ego and pride is uncontainable. But what if I'm saying, I know you love me. I know you know I'm your creator, but sometimes we don't know what's good for us. And so I'm going to take a little bit and see how you react. If it's too much, okay, okay, I'll, I'll let you hold on to something because we're not ready to let it go. But sooner or later, God goes, it's only me and you at the end of the day. I will not let you hold on to all these attachments and all these things that are not from me. I'm not going to allow it because I love you too much to let you fall. So I'm going to remove some things. And as you react with prayers of thanksgiving, oh, okay, I can start taking a little bit more. So the more we give thanks and the closer we get to God, the more he's going to re remove all these obstacles that blur our vision to the shepherd. Because the reality is, those attachments isn't our salvation. God is. St. Paul. I'm almost done, I promise. Um, now let's think of St. Paul. And 
when we read this, it's such a blessing to, to be called St. Paul's Church. It really is. Because everything that I ever go with the church fathers and we talk about the early church always goes back to St. Paul. It, it's amazing. So St. Paul has a thorn in his flesh, which we don't know what it is. Suffered multiple shipwrecks, including one which I just found out about, an entire night and day adrift in the open sea. 24 hours in open sea, adrift. Been imprisoned, repeatedly flogged, beaten, and stoned. Who does he remind you of? Jesus. Jesus. Been falsely accused by Jews, Gentiles, and false Christians. Very Christ-like. Now I want you to uh, see how St. Paul reacts to this. It's incredible. It's not even human. I feel like it's not human, the way he reacts. Now look how St. Paul responds to just being, this just happened in the same passage. He's been accused, beaten with rods, flogged, imprisoned, and chained with, hands, with his hands and feet. Okay? Now listen to what happens in the next verse. But at midnight, midnight praises, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's unfathomable. I, I, I can't. All of this has happened to him just now. And what is he doing? Singing praises and hymns? At night. It just happened. Very Christ-like. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now listen to this. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosened. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, oh my gosh, he fled. For sure they left. There's no doubt about it, they left. Supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But St. Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. What? Excuse me? I deserve to leave. All this has happened to me? I'm out of here. There's no way I'm staying in this. He's literally in hell, and he's saying, I'm going to stay to save a life. That's our St. Paul. But... Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before St. Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Like, this is so miraculous. There's no other human being, I think, on the face of the planet that would do this. What do you have that I want? There's something about you that I desire. How can I be saved like you are? For you to not care about all of this circumstance... I want a part of that. So now, if we look at the progression of this scenario, we see the passion of Christ. Let's go over it. Accused falsely. Beaten. Flogged. Imprisoned with chains. And it's midnight. Let's go further. There's a great earthquake. That's what happened when Christ died. Saved, saves a prison guard, like the right thief, and has the prison guard repent back to God. 
like the right, right thief repented to Christ on the cross. So the question is, do we still hold strong to our convictions, our faith, our trust in Christ when everything starts getting stripped away? This will eventually happen. Okay? So why must this happen? Why should we get rid of our detachments? Or, sorry, attachments. Why do we have to get rid of our attachments? In order to be attached closer and closer to God, we must detach from the world because the world is in complete opposition with God. That's why it says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You want to be with me? Then I have to get rid of your addictions. I have to get rid of the things that you love about the world because that's not who I am. This is why sometimes God allows us to hold on to certain things because we haven't had the ability to detach from it. It will be too much of a shock at a certain time. So he does it like a precious child. He's very fragile, very careful with us and what he allows us to draw away from. To be able to lose everything so that we only have him left. This is how it was before the fall and this is where we need to get back to. He wants all of us just as he gave all of himself to us. I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. This is our death daily. So I am preparing you to leave the world by having you die daily to that point. So what is going to happen to you, I want you to start learning from now. Die daily so when actual death comes, you are prepared. You are ready to go. Therefore, a true sacrificial offering has to hurt. It has to sting. Because the more we begin to live a lifestyle of thanksgiving, the more Christ will strip away our possessions. So the next question, I have two more questions and we're done. Two questions. Why must it hurt? Why must it sting? Because none of this was supposed to happen. We are not of this world. We are not supposed to die. That wasn't in the original script. But we changed that script. And God allowed it. And then he came back to fix it. That's our loving God. You messed up, but I'm going to come back and still bring you back to me. That's why it hurts. Because our flesh is trapped in a world that we're not supposed to be a part of. So dying daily is not an easy task because our flesh desires the world, but our spirit desires God. The physical body desires all the physical things, passions, right? While our spirit desires the spiritual gifts from its source, our spiritual father. That's why God is spirit. Our spirit is tied to God. Our flesh is not. And that's what we're, we're trying to force our flesh to do. It's awkward. It doesn't want it but we have to force it. And when we force it, the spirit will take over the flesh, not the other way around. This is why we must leave this world 
and God prepares us for two types of deaths. Death from attachments and death from the body. One will lead to the other. So our bodies hurt, but our spirit rejoices. Because remember, we are not of this world. Okay, last questions, and I'll end with this one. Why must it be through death? Because this is the greatest perfect sacrifice. God doesn't just want a sacrifice. He wants the very best sacrifice. The very best version of yourself. Be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. So in other words, his standard is way up here. It's perfect. Now, does he expect you to reach that standard? Not alone. You will reach that when you constantly think of me. And how do you constantly think of me? Thanksgiving. The thanksgiving brings God back into the equation. It brings God back closer to us so we can reach the pinnacle of salvation because we can't do it alone. So he wants us to imitate the perfect sacrificial unblemished lamb. He wants us to be what he is. He wants you to be inconvenienced, be struggle, be hurt, be nothing to this world, be nothing here on earth so you are everything to me. Be a nobody to humanity so you are the only begotten child to the Father. Be like Christ. And then he says it super clearly in Scripture. No greater love than to die for your friend to lay down your life for the brethren. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, only the very best, which is your reasonable service. Why does it say reasonable service? That's what you're supposed to be doing. And do not be conformed to this world. Be hurt. Don't be a part of this world. Make it hurt. Don't be what this world tells you to be but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is this good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are the living sacrifice. We are to present ourselves as holy, blameless, and perfect sacrifice to the world. We are to be dying in the world so that we can prepare to be dead to the world. I'll say that again. We are to be dying in the world so that we can prepare to be dead to the world. And I'm gonna end with this um, paradox of our faith, and I'll say it twice. And I'll end here. Living a life of thanksgiving is living a life of no ownership, but a life of a poor beggar pleading to God for crumbs that fall from his master's table. Living a life of thanksgiving is living a life of no ownership, but a life of a poor beggar pleading to God for crumbs from his master's table. And glory be to God forever and ever, amen. I'm sorry I took a little long, I apologize. the next week, we'll finish with the last two aspects of Thanksgiving. Uh, any questions? I know uh, we didn't have the coffee we usually have, so I know you guys are probably hungry, tired, and wanting caffeine. So I apologize for that. But if there's any questions. No questions? All right, let's stand up and, oh, was there? No, okay, let's stand up and pray.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen.